chapter 2 to 12, the book of the signs. Well, the signs are the miracles in certain events that Jesus performs in these chapters. And the signs in these chapters reveal Jesus for who he truly is, what he came to do, what he came to offer, what he came to provide. And these signs reveal his glory, the glory of the word who became flesh. Now, also in this wedding, this particular event, this particular sign, the first of the signs, we find a family, a young couple and their families, and they are in trouble. This is no minor inconvenience at this wedding that these folks are facing. I will explain it a little more in a few minutes so you truly appreciate something of a crisis that these folks are facing. They're in trouble. They need something of a rescue. They need something of a rescuer. Jesus is that rescue. He is that rescuer providing the rescue. This is pointing to the fact that he is the ultimate rescuer providing the ultimate rescue for troubled humanity in crisis. I will quote for you a great remark, which I'm delighted that this gentleman expressed this truth from this passage, from this event, in these terms. Dr. Edward Clink, in his commentary on John, writes, Jesus transforms a failing wedding celebration into a living symbol. That's what this is. It is a real event, real history, real space, real time, first century A.D., around 2728 A.D., but it is a living symbol. A living symbol of the wedding of the Son of God Himself in the future. Jesus, the faithful Son. Jesus, the true bridegroom. He will make preparations for His bride, the church. Yes, thank you, Dr. Clank. So Jesus transforms this wedding into a living symbol for a far greater reality to come. In fact, an event that is in our future at the end of human history as we know it. Verse 1. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, or Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So, um, first of all, we must remember that John himself is an eyewitness of this event. He's there. And you have these very interesting eyewitness details that are included in this account, which is a bit unusual for an ancient document at this time. And so when John says on the third day, this would be the third day after Jesus acquired two more disciples, Philip and Nathaniel, who we were spending time with the past few weeks. So this is very near or at the end of Jesus' first week of his public ministry. And it's interesting to remember that in chapter 21, John tells us that Nathaniel is from Cana and Galilee. He's from this town where this wedding takes place. Why he doesn't tell us here in chapter 2, we don't know. He tells us later in chapter 21. So Nathaniel could have been one of the reasons why Jesus and the others are invited to the wedding. Not the only reason why, but one of the reasons why. So after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel through these, the course of these three days, I would say sometime, probably sometime when Jesus is still at this Bethany beyond the Jordan River where he's drawing in his first disciples who have been coming down there to listen to John the baptizer. Probably at that time, someone from his family or Nathaniel may have invited them to this event back in Galilee and Cana. And so there's more work to do in Galilee, and this wedding is one of those works, those signs that Jesus wants to arrive at. This is part of his work in Galilee. And so they're walking back for a few days. Um, how many of his disciples are there? Well, we really don't know. That's just about anybody's guess, if you'll pardon the expression. I would say we, we have to agree from the information that's given us, 
Jesus has probably six or more of his 12 disciples at at this time. All of them probably not. Well, we really don't know. Uh, They've been traveling back into Galilee for a few days now. So on this third day, they finally arrive in Cana or Cana to attend this wedding. Now, where did this wonderful event take place? There's your visual to the day for the day. There are some of those very large stone water jars that are mentioned in the text, and it plays such an important role in the text. Um, Many historians believe that we know the exact place. Other historians and archaeologists have a problem with this, saying we really don't know where this event took place for this reason. Uh, There was more than one village in the first century A.D. that was named Cana or Cana. That's why they say Cana in Galilee, because other provinces had their own village or town called Cana or Cana. And the word basically means reeds or place of reeds. Presumably there's a spring or a creek or a stream nearby the village. Uh, You can visit several sites, which to this day, many believe is the correct location where Jesus performed the first of his signs. There, if you want to see that very, very old church, there is actually a village, uh, a small town by the name of Cana to this day that has a very old tradition, as you can imagine, that that was the correct town of Cana in Galilee where Jesus performed this miracle. And that very, very beautiful old church there, according to tradition, is said to stand on the site of the home, of the property, where Jesus revealed himself as the creator God and turned water into wine, the God who still creates and provides. However, there may be another place, if you ever get a chance to visit Israel, which may even be more likely. A place known uh, that's favored among some archaeologists known as Kirbet Kana. It is only about nine miles north of Nazareth. So this makes sense. Easily accessible to Jesus and his family. There is no village standing there at this time. It's literally an archaeological site. It is definitely the remains of a village from the first century A.D. And so archaeologists are working on it right now. Even as we speak, I understand. They're very excited to get to the truth of this town that they've located. But if you're fortunate enough to visit Israel, you can visit all of these locations and you're bound to be in the right place where this actually happened. One of the most important locations in history of the most important life that was ever lived. Now next, John mentions that the mother of Jesus was there. So Cana or Cana was close to Nazareth, nine miles away. Even the other locations are in fairly close proximity, easy, easy to walk there, easy traveling distance. It's highly likely that Jesus and his family, Mary and her family, Jesus have brothers and sisters. It's more than likely that they had family or friends there in the village. They may have even been distant relatives of one of the two families who are involved in this wedding. After all, uh, later you will notice, of course, that Mary is pretty upset about the situation. She obviously takes some great personal concern over the shortage of wine and its consequences. Now, some have suggested through the years that Mary actually was helping out the family at this wedding. I'd say that's a distinct possibility. Notice, it is interesting that John does not mention her by name. He never mentions Mary by name in this gospel. He will always simply say the mother of Jesus. Why is that? I believe the chief point is this reason. Mary's identity is to be totally defined by her son, Jesus, the Messiah. Her identity is defined by Jesus. 
Some have tragically over the centuries elevated this dear sweet woman to a place that she does not legitimately have or hold. And she would be the first one to agree with that, to tell you that. I think John's point is her identity is to be totally defined by her son, who is not merely the son of Mary. He is son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 2, and Jesus was also invited and his disciples to the wedding. So Jesus obviously has some connections, some relationship to these families of this village who are holding this wedding. By the way, probably the entire town, the entire village is invited and is showing up and is participating. That was the custom. And Jesus may have been invited by Nathaniel as well, who is from Cana. He obviously had a connection there. He lived there. There's a very old tradition that he, that he was related to some of these folks involved in this wedding. So Jesus' disciples who were invited, they would have at least have been what? Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Simon Peter, John himself, and probably John's brother James as well. Maybe more. Not sure. Now it's quite significant that Jesus' first public miracle. Now he has been, he gave us a manifestation, a demonstration of his deity, of his divine attributes in this conversation with Nathaniel. But this is where he actually reveals, if I may use this expression, raw, transcendent, or divine supernatural power in front of a group of people who had to have been in the dozens, if not a hundred or a few hundred or more, at this wedding celebration in this village. Of all places to do this sort of thing, to begin to do this sort of thing. He does so in Galilee, his home province. Well, that seems to make sense, but it's a rural province in a small town. We would think probably he would go to Jerusalem, the capital city, to the temple complex, and in some grand display reveal who he truly is and his identity and his mission and his power. Not so. It is done in a much more quiet, gentler, subtler even mysterious way. That's God's way, not our way. His ways are often not our ways. He always seems to work in the majority, in the countercultural, to fallen sinful humanity and fallen flawed human reasoning. And of all events, what does he choose? He doesn't choose one of the great religious festivals. Now he will attend the great religious festivals and reveal himself and his identity and mission later. But here he chooses a wedding. And that is no coincidence. That is no accident. Everything you read and see here is all a divine plan. Devised in the mind and heart of the triune God from eternity past. It is significant that Jesus begins to reveal himself in these signs at a wedding celebration. All part of the divine plan again. So to fully understand this event, we need to familiarize ourselves somewhat with what a first century Jewish wedding was. And I have to tell you, first of all, that the Jewish wedding, a Jewish wedding, in particular at this time in history, it was certainly one of the most important and celebrated events in Jewish cultural and religious life at this time. So let me try to briefly describe Jewish wedding for you. You may have heard this uh, before in someone teaching you the parable of the ten bridesmaids, for example, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 25. And you may have known that betrothals were taken or engagements were taken extremely seriously by Jewish custom and culture at this time, much, taken much more seriously than our engagements. You may have heard that before in the engagement of Mary and Joseph in studying the first two chapters of Luke, the 
birth narratives of Jesus. And engagement was, was binding. It was legally binding. Uh, when we break off a engagement, oh, there may be some emotional turmoil and somebody handing back a ring. Well, not so in the first century A.D. If you tried to break off an engagement in Jewish life at this time, you had to go to court. It was the same as, well, what we would think of as going through a public legal divorce in court. Now, when the wedding day came, after great preparation, because this is a huge event, culturally and religiously, everybody that you knew would have been invited. Friends, family, extended family. Friend, if you lived in a small village, likely it's not the entire village, and people living in the countryside around the village would be invited and would be expected to be invited and show up and participate. And the wedding ceremony took place in one night. And, but the wedding's feast, the wedding celebration, would take place probably for a week or more. Even if you had modest means, even poor folks would go for days on end, probably a week or more. If you were a very wealthy person with great resources, you would go even longer to celebrate this union, the future life of the family, and to impress your friends and your neighbors and your family. All right. Now, what would happen is, you may not have ever heard this before, but uh, if memory serves me correct, if the bride was a maiden, the wedding would be on a Wednesday. If the bride was a remarrying widow, the wedding would be on a Thursday. And the custom was it would take place at night because the bridegroom would form a great procession with his friends and his family members, and they would uh, uh, perform the ceremony at night, begin the ceremony at night, because you could light all the lamps and light torches and lanterns, and it would be this happy, joyful procession with all this fire and lamps and torches and singing and dancing and everybody making merry and getting all excited, and they would process to the house of the bride. And the actual ceremony would take place in the house of the bride. And was there a rabbi officiating or a priest or a Levite? We don't know. Some of those details escape us. How involved would the families be? Well, those details escape us somewhat as well. But the ceremony would be performed there. And then they would all form an, <laughs> an even bigger procession to go back to the bridegroom's house. And there at the bridegroom's house or his father's house, then the real celebration begins, which would go for days on end. Lots of food, lots of wine. Bread and wine are the staff or the staples of life to sustain human life and existence at this time. You don't have wine, you don't have bread, you don't get by. You don't survive. And as we all know, good potable drinking water at this time was anybody's guess and a great risk. And naturally, because this is such an important religious and cultural event to the lives of these people, what kind of wine would be served at the wedding? The best that you could possibly get your hands on and the best that you could possibly afford. Now, this master of ceremonies, this banquet manager, uh, he tells us in his remarks to the bridegroom a little later on that people have a habit of drinking a little bit too much at a lot of these weddings that he has presided over. He's not condoning that, and Scripture doesn't condone it. He's just telling you what he sees. And when the palates are a little, let's say, dulled or a little less sensitive, after the best wine is served first to impress everybody, then they start to bring out the cheap stuff, as we say here in America. But he's amazed that this wedding, everything is turned completely around, completely backwards. Now, about the wine. 
it would have been the best that they could possibly could have afforded. Wine was not only a staple of life, and it was important to the celebration culturally, but it's a religious symbol. Wine celebrates God's goodness and His kindness and His providence and His provision for humanity. It celebrates the joy that a gracious God gives to His people in providing for them and sustaining them. Now, we know how they mixed or diluted the wine. They wanted to prevent drunkenness. They're not there to encourage drunkenness. Plus, they want the wine to literally last longer so it's a little bit easier on the household economy, right? We have recipes for this from the Greco-Roman world and from the Jewish world. Rabbi suggested that for one part wine, you mixed it with two or three parts water. And that was the custom. Now, when this well celebration gets started, and this wine runs out, you are in big trouble. Again, folks, this is no minor inconvenience as running out of beverages at a modern wedding would be. Oh, you'd have some aggravated, complaining people. But to us, shrug it off, big deal, move on, it's no big deal. To these folks, it's a huge deal. If this celebration flops, if this celebration fails, if that wine runs out, this couple can be crippled in their social and cultural married life for years, if not the rest of their lives. Remember, this is a shame and honor culture. Let me say that again. A shame and honor culture. It still is to this day in the Near East and the Middle East to a degree. If this wine runs out, you can be culturally shamed or ostracized. You can be socially punished for years for the rest of your life. Also, they could be taken to court and sued. There is the rule of reciprocity. If I'm a well-to-do man in Cana and I throw a huge celebration for the whole village and it goes off magnificently and there is another wedding in which my family is involved in, I expect that wedding to outdo me in largesse and hospitality. And if that family fails to do so, I can take them to court and sue them for liabilities and for damages. You get it? I know that's very bizarre to 21st century Americans, but this couple can be ruined. Culturally, they're going to bear a stigma, and financially, they can be wrecked before they even get off the ground in their married life by being sued in court for the failure of this wedding. That's what's really going on here. So this brings us to verse 3. And when the wine gave out, it's a minor catastrophe. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So, now at this crisis time or moment, the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. It's written very emphatically in the Greek. Mary is probably very emotional, very upset here. Also, the original Greek of this verse, from what Mary says to Jesus, it strongly suggests, folks, that the wine isn't just running low. How this mishap happened, we're not given that detail. But it's not good. From what she says to Jesus, as recorded by John in the original Greek, it suggests that the wine isn't running out. It's well nigh entirely gone. Panic! The situation is critical for the reasons I already mentioned to you. So Mary goes to Jesus the only person that she sees as being able to ameliorate this crisis. That's one of the good things that Mary does. She goes to Jesus. If you're in a panic, if you're in a crisis, go to Jesus. He is the one who can ameliorate or remedy the crisis. Now Mary perhaps is connected to the situation somehow. She's obviously deeply concerned, knowing the consequences that would follow. These young folks would be hurt very badly. Now, what Mary expected Jesus to do exactly? 
has been hotly debated over the centuries. What exactly is she expecting him to do? She seems to be actually demanding something of him. Using her prerogative as a mother to prod or goad her son to do something. Act! This is a disaster! Panic! Help! What she expected him to do exactly, we don't know. There's been a lot of speculation and conjecture too much, and a lot of ink spilled over the years concerning this. Did she expect the miraculous? We don't know. Some theologians claim that she did. Some, I don't know about that. I really don't know about that. Very well, perhaps not. But she knew he could do something. Um, let me make this point, which is very important. Jesus Christ our Lord, before this day, before this wedding, He performed no acts of the supernatural until this day. Mary did not see her son performing miracles right and left at whim and will his entire childhood as he was growing up. There are some very old traditions that claim that and stories from those old false apocryphal gospels. One of them you're going to snicker at. I may have told you before over the years. There's an old uh, apocryphal tale that says that Jesus entertained his childhood friends by crafting little animals out of clay and transforming them into real animals. It's ridiculous. It's mixing pagan folk tales into the gospel of the one true living God, the good news of the person and work of God the Son, the Word made flesh. He'd performed no public miracles or grand acts of the supernatural before this day. It's going to begin here. But we, Mary expects something. Perhaps she does expect a miracle, knowing that miracles will one day come. Because of all people, she knows Jesus' true identity, His true origins, that He is the Messiah. After all, she had a conversation with who? An archangel who stands before the very personal presence of God and has from eternity past or near it. He will be the Son of God. He will come to save His people from His sins. Mary's aware, of course, obviously, of His true origins and identity. Son of God. Did she truly understand all of that? Probably not. But in part, yes. He's the Messiah. John tells us the Word made flesh. He has now left home. He's out in the world. He stepped out onto the world stage. She knows he's out on his formal mission, his public ministry, the reason that he entered this world in the first place. And she's obviously, over the years, learned to rely very heavily upon Jesus. At this time, she's leaning very heavily on Jesus. Jesus is probably the head of the family, the firstborn son. There's no mention of Joseph in the Gospels after Luke chapter 1 and 2. So many believe, probably rightfully so, that Joseph has died by this time. And Jesus, according to the culture, is the head of the family. He has always been a magnificent, resourceful son. He is the Messiah. If anyone can help, he can. He could. And so she hopes that some way, somehow, he will intervene, but her way. As she's prodding, as she's demanding, as she's asking... Are you beginning to see the problem here? And from Jesus' response in the next verse, we have to come to the conclusion that whatever Mary's expectations and motives, she was presuming upon Jesus in some way that she should not have. She is presuming upon Jesus and his messianic identity and role in some way. She is imposing upon his person and his mission in some way. No, Mary was not perfect. She's a sinner just like us who is in need of the redemption that her son came to win. For her and for all of those 
who would come to believe and have life in his name. She is in some way in the wrong here. She is crossing a line with Jesus, which should not have been crossed. And so Jesus responds, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, by the way, this is a bit enigmatic in the Greek. It's hard to translate. So I know you folks will have various translations there. Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. It's a very interesting response, isn't it? Very interesting remarks. And Jesus is saying something in important and quite profound here. First of all, his response to his mother in the original Greek, it has been a conundrum to translators and interpreters. It's something of an enigmatic and even mysterious response, isn't it? And to a modern reader in particular, it may seem downright harsh or rude for him to be speaking to his mother this way. Is it? Absolutely not. Certainly not. Once again, um, <laughs> I have to take you back to the first century A.D. to understand this. Um, but first of all, is it a harsh or rude remark? Unbelievers often accuse Jesus of being harsh or rude to his mother here. Is it such a remark? No, it is not. Certainly not. Not in any way. Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, he knew no sin. He had no sin nature. Nor was he ever guilty of any wrongdoing whatsoever. But we do need to examine this remark carefully. It's significant. First of all, when Jesus addresses his mother as woman, gunai, in the Greek. To a modern reader, it sounds harsh or disrespectful. It's not. Let me describe this remark to you in the first century A.D. You have to know the history. You have to know the culture. In the culture of the first century, this term of address was respectful. It was polite. In fact, as odd as it may sound to our ears, in certain contexts, it was considered or could be considered even a term of affection. If you will notice in this gospel, Jesus will refer to several women as woman. He will address them as gonai, woman. It is polite. It is respectful. It can even be affectionate. But here, in certain contexts as here, yes, there is a certain formality to this term. A polite formality to this term. It's very hard to make comparisons but let me make this comparison. It's similar to someone in English referring to a woman as ma'am. Good morning, ma'am. Good afternoon, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Good night, ma'am. And so forth. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is speaking to his mother. Why doesn't he just say mother? But instead he uses a polite but formal ma'am. Or the equivalent thereof. You see, Jesus is establishing something of a formality between he and his mother, deliberately. And it's odd, in my word studies this week, I found this interesting. At this time in history, nowhere else in Jewish or Greek literature is a son recorded as having used this term of address to his mother. Jesus is putting some sort of polite but formal distance between them that he sees as necessary. I think Jesus is saying, he's implying that his mother does not determine when, where, or how his glory in his mission is to be revealed. She does not presume upon the person and the work of God the Son and the prerogative that God the Father holds in being in command of God the Son's mission. Mary has crossed a line that she should not have crossed. 
Mary nor anyone else can impose or presume upon Christ, upon God, and His mission and His plan. Mary nor anyone else determines how Jesus is to reveal truly the magnificence of His glory and His power. How Jesus is to fulfill His mission and demonstrate His power. God the Father does. Christ Himself does by divine decree and plan, not by the will and whim of human beings, family or no. Mary must, Mary's facing a hard situation here, God bless her and love her, that we do. She's having to learn a lesson here. Do you see what's happening? Mary must no longer look at and think of Jesus as her son. Mary must now begin to look at Jesus as son of God the Almighty. She must now begin to look at her son as her Lord, the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of God. Now, what does Jesus mean by this mysterious, my hour is not yet come? Well, that's a strange, mysterious thing to say. What does Jesus mean by this, my hour is not yet come? He's saying, what, what have I to do with you? What have I to do with this request you're placing upon me? This demand, what have I to do with all of this? What have I to do with your request? What have I to do with what you're asking for here? My hour has not yet come. And Jesus will use this expression several times or more in this gospel. It's interesting that when the time of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is imminent, when His sacrifice on the cross is near, when the time of His sacrifice on the cross has come, Jesus will say what? My hour has come. My hour is here. My hour has arrived. So when Jesus refers to the hour, His hour this, His hour that, my hour has not come, my hour has come, He is referring to His atoning sacrifice on the cross. The reason He came into the world in the flesh in the first place. The climactic time, the climactic event of His atoning work. His mission in this, His first advent. The fateful time when He and the Divine Father will be most magnificently glorified and His accomplished atoning work. That cross is one of the greatest ways in which God the Father will be glorified in Christ, God the Son. And Jesus' true identity, His mission, His glory are fully revealed by way of that cross and that empty tomb. Jesus is saying this, This wedding is not the hour when my true and greatest glory will be revealed. That is by divine plan, ma'am, not your plan or anyone else's. That happens God the Father's way, ma'am, not yours. The kind of glory and magnificence that you are asking for, it will grow and it will grow, but it will finally and truly be revealed on a Roman cross and a tomb in a graveyard. Not at this wedding, crisis or no. That glorified cross will settle a far greater crisis than the lack of wine at this wedding. The greatest glory for which He came into the world will be accomplished on that sacrificial cross and that empty tomb and nowhere else by divine plan. And here's the irony, here's the beauty of it. What Jesus will accomplish on that cross will make possible the greatest wedding ever in the history of the universe that will be held in the future. At the end of the divine plan, when it's all wrapped up, and the great bridegroom himself enjoys his wedding feast, which knows no end. There's the irony of it. Verse 5, His mother said to the servants, this is wonderful, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary honored, I believe she honored what her son said to her. 
She's backed off a bit, probably, respectfully. She's honored what the Messiah has said. Did she fully understand what he meant? Probably not. How could she have? In part, yes, but not entirely. But she does not seem to have taken Jesus' words as a harsh rebuke. He didn't speak harshly to her. He had to establish something. But he wasn't being mean to her. She did submit to his statement. But she obviously clearly shows something of a hope, an expectation, a confidence, dare I say faith, in her son. That some way, somehow, his way, he will act, he will help. He will save this couple, this family, this situation. Frankly, I join those in believing that Jesus would have taken action anyway. That's why he's there, to take action and to begin to reveal who he truly is. He would have taken action anyway. His way, God the Father's way. He didn't need his mother's prodding in order to do that, or anyone else's prodding. He's there by a divine plan, folks. He's there to help. He's there to save. He came to this wedding by divine providence, by divine plan to help, to turn this wedding into a living symbol of his own wedding. At the end of history as we know it. To turn this wedding into a living symbol of his person and work, that will be accomplished in the distant future, the wedding of the Lamb, according to the book of Revelation. So as we see Mary, expectation and hope, she goes to the servants, who were probably in a blind panic by now, and wisely, this is wise on Mary's part, she just urges them to obey, to comply with whatever Jesus tells them to do. She knows that whatever He says, whatever He instructs, do it. Obey it. It will work. Isn't that interesting? Lesson for us, do we realize this? Do we act upon this? Do we simply do whatever He says? Whatever He commands? Knowing His way is best and it will work? Do what He says. He will take action on your behalf. He will help you in His own way, in His own time. Summary of lessons to learn from Mary. When Mary imposes and presumes upon God the Son, she is rebuked, however gently. But when Mary instead responds in faith as a believer, Mary is rewarded. Isn't that interesting? Verse 6, Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. There they are, or jars very similar to them. So obviously nearby, where this feast is being held for the purposes of Old Covenant era, Old Testament era, Jewish ritual or religious cleansing and purification rites. There are these six. John was there. He's giving you the details. There were six of them. I was there. I saw it. There were six large stone water jars for all the guests and participants to come in, wash their faces, wash their hands, wash utensils. Probably other water was set up front for them to wash their feet as invited guests when they arrive. Very, very important religiously at this time and culturally for the Jewish people. By the way, for those of you interested in history, some of them have been found. Those are just a few examples. Others have been found at archaeological sites excavated in Israel. And how's this? Most of these big stone water jars, just like the kind described in the Gospels they found, they were probably carved out of a single block of stone. How's that for workmanship? Now, John, that's a, this is a lot of water. That's the point. This is a lot of water. It's going to be a lot of wine. Metretes is the word he uses in the Greek. We translate as measure. 
Two or three measures, we're talking about 20, 30 gallons each. Each measure, though, is eight and a half, nine gallons, so each jar 20, 30 gallons or more. So we're dealing with upwards of 120, probably upwards of 150 gallons of water or more. Why does John mention this? He's an eyewitness. And John also wants to make a point. He wants to emphasize the graciousness, the kindness, the generosity of the Word made flesh to these people how He rescues them and how He provides for them. This is also believed... Please understand this. This is a living symbol of this event. This is one of the living symbols of this event. This water and the wine it becomes are part of the living symbol of this event. How is that so? The water represents the Old Covenant. It's there for ritualistic purposes. The ritualistic water they have there represents the old way, the old covenant, the old order of Jewish law and custom. Jesus turns that water into something better. He turns that water into wine, meaning this. Jesus has come to replace the old order, to replace the old covenant with something new, a better way, a new covenant, the wine. The old wash water represents the old covenant. It's doing its job, but now that God the Son, the Word made flesh, has arrived, He turns it into something better. Wine! A new covenant. A greater covenant. So verse 7, Jesus takes action. Jesus said to them, quiet action, very matter of fact, very simple. He said to them, fill those water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. So Jesus takes action His way, but in a more subtle, quieter, gentler way than probably what His mother was asking for, or perhaps demanding. And the servants wisely obey Him. They fill the jars, these big jars, to the brim. And only water, nothing else to, could be added. Folks, there's no sleight of hand here. Jesus didn't add a bunch of water to a certain quantity of wine to give the, uh, the look, the illusion that this water had become wine. No, the point is, He tells them, fill it up to overflowing with water and only water. Nothing else can be added. The greatness of the gift, the greatness of the miracle is again emphasized here in this large amount of water. Jesus and John is telling us that a great supernatural act of divine creative power is about to take place. The Word made flesh will turn this water into sweet wine. He's going to turn it into the most wonderful wine that any human being has ever put into their mouth or ever will. Why? Because this vintage is crafted by the hands of God the Son, the Word made flesh Himself. Nobody ever tasted anything as magnificent as this. Pointing to who He is, what He does, how He provides. He came to provide for it. He came to save the day for this couple and this family. He came to save all of us and eliminate our crises. So Jesus is about to demonstrate what sort of divine attribute do you think here? This is the third divine attribute that he's getting ready to demonstrate. Remember the conversation with Nathaniel? He demonstrated the divine attributes of omniscience and omnipresence. Here he's going to manifest the attribute of omnipotence. He has the raw power to do this. The raw power to turn something into something else. And not the natural way, with fermentation and time. He will speak, and it will be so. Jesus is about to demonstrate that He possesses the power of the Creator God to create and provide. By the way, Jesus is proving He is the God of a popular Jewish prayer. Have you ever heard of this prayer? 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. This is who he is. Jesus, the Word, is the God who creates and who provides. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. I believe this is the moment that the miracle takes place. A lot of people have argued over the years, when does it take place? Does it turn into wine when they're dipping it out? Does it turn into wine when it's on the way to the table? When it's on the way to the banquet manager? I think it happens right here. Verse 8. And he said to them, draw some out now. It becomes wine. As he is speaking, it becomes wine. I think that's the moment the miracle occurs. Why? As Jesus speaks, divine creative power works. Remember God in creation? God spoke and it was so. He still speaks, He still creates, He still provides. Jesus is the divine word who speaks divine words and He creates. Here, wine. And all that it means, all that it represents, all that it brings to these people. He meets their desperate need. He creates. He rescues. That's who He is, and that is what He has come to do. And you can imagine, or can you imagine? Try to think of this as if you've heard of this event for the very first time. What if you were there? Where did this come from? How did this happen? Right? The wine truck didn't pull up to the back as it does in the 21st century. This is the 1st century A.D. This is a rural village. The wine is gone. Now all of a sudden we have the best wine that anyone ever saw or tasted in their life and it's in a super abundance. How did this happen? May I suggest an act of God? Verse 9. This is wonderful. I love this. This is one of my favorite conversations in the Gospels. I'll read verse 9-10 together. And he, well, first Jesus, draw some out now, take it to the head waiter or the banquet manager. And they took it to him. They took a quantity to him. Jesus is obeying the rules. You have to have it approved. You have to have it tasted. Right? He's doing everything right. Playing gentlemanly, of course. And they took it to him, the banquet manager. And when the banquet manager, the head waiter, tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, wonderful little footnote of John's in parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water, they knew... The head waiter called the bridegroom. <laughs> By the way, you can smile at this. You can laugh at this. You're meant to. You're meant to be happy. You're meant to be rejoiced. You're meant to be exult in what Jesus is doing here and how He has saved these people and what He's doing. This man called a head waiter. He wouldn't have been a servant. Uh, you call him a master of ceremonies, banquet manager, chief steward. He probably was a guest himself, and he would have been a guest of social standing and substance who is asked to preside over this celebration. He would have done this many times. He would have been a leading citizen in the community. And this was common in both Jewish and Roman culture of the time. And so you see how gentle, how quiet, how mysterious this display of Jesus' power and authority is? He just speaks. He just gives a few instructions, but it's a divine command. And it is so. And then he quietly, apparently, just rejoins his family and his companions at his place at the table. No great show of the matter that his mother was asking for, just matter of fact. This is who God is. He is gracious and he is kind. 
and he is generous. He is just doing what he has always done for pitiful humanity and trouble. And he's full of surprises. Don't forget that, folks. I'm not trying to be cute. He is full of surprises. This is a joyful surprise. Folks, read the Gospels. How many times does Jesus surprise everybody? Pardon the expression, folks. How many times does He pull the rug out from underneath everybody in His public ministry and His life? He is full of surprises. He will always do things counter to what we think. Watch for Him. Listen for Him. Read this. Know this. Know how He works. How to listen for Him and watch for Him. And so He surprises in this miracle, this sign. How often does He surprise us? His way, not our way, is the best way. So obviously, at this particular moment, the chief steward, the banquet manager, he doesn't know how this occurred. He doesn't have a clue where this wine came from. I'm sure he's wondering. He only knows now that the very best has arrived. Jesus does not work. He does not give by half measures. That's one of the points of this miracle. He knows best. He gives best. He provides the right way. He provides what is right generously when it is right. And it is the best and it is for the best. And you have to see here, he's provided an abundance for this young couple. It's an important detail. You only know it if you know the culture. He's provided an abundance for this young couple. He hasn't just provided enough, he's provided more than enough. Remember the custom? You cut the wine with water. One part wine, two or three parts water. So what does that mean? 150 gallons of the best wine will likely become upwards of 300 gallons or more. He'll have more than enough for this wedding and more. They can put it in the storehouse. You see what he's doing? He's providing for their marriage. They can probably sell this, the best wine that anybody has ever had, some of the abundance, and make a little money to start their married life right. Jesus is likely providing them with a prosperous wedding present to start their marriage. A gracious wedding present from the Word made flesh Himself. And Jesus is also proving He's the God of Psalm 23. You know that. Psalm 23 is messianic. What does Psalm 23 tell us? You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Jesus is proving that He is the God who makes your cup overflow spiritually and sometimes literally and physically. This points to the fact that He is the greatest bridegroom of all. Jesus begins to preside and provide over this little wedding feast at Cana, and it's pointing to the fact that Jesus will preside and provide over His own wedding at the end of history as we know it for His bride, the church, that John writes in Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. This really is wonderful, isn't it? This conversation between the banquet manager and the groom. Everything's been turned upside down. They failed in their assigned task. Jesus takes over and He succeeds. John wants you to exult and rejoice in this. The results, the consequences of Jesus' work. Jesus has ultimately and abundantly fulfilled the role of the master of the banquet and the bridegroom. Verse 11, our concluding verse. Now, this is an interesting thing to say. This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. It manifested His glory and His disciples believed in Him. So now with verse 11, John gives you something of a summary 
of this climactic event of Jesus' first public miracle, the first sign, the climactic event of his first week or so of his public ministry. John is saying that this wedding, it's a beginning. Watch out. Watch. Listen, he's saying. This is only the start. This is only the beginning. Something of a new world is now beginning. A new era is now beginning. A new creation is being inaugurated because the Creator God has arrived in the flesh as prophesied. Watch for these events. Watch for these signs that tell us who He is. Where He's come from. What He's come for. What He's going to do. <coughs> Pardon me. This wedding is a new beginning of divine signs, John is telling you. Signs that are to come and to follow. This is only the first of many. Signs and events and displays of divine power, of divine glory, which revealed Jesus' true identity, purpose, and mission. And John uses this word semeon, sign. It's one of the most important words for him in this gospel. And as with this wedding that we just learned of, that we just attended, so to speak, as with this wedding, Jesus' miracles are events. Remember this. Jesus' miracles are real events, real occurrences in history. But they are living signs. They are living symbols of oft times and even greater reality concerning Jesus and who He is, what He is, what He does, what He will do. These signs point to something beyond themselves. That's what you have to remember. And as John tells us, these signs function as the very means by which Jesus reveals His divine glory, His divine person. After all, remember the prologue? Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. Never forget that. Everything that you read and see and hear in this gospel, you have to view through the lens of the prologue. In fact, John is saying this. Let me use a paraphrase of Dr. Klink from his commentary. John is saying something like this, if I can put it in the common English vernacular. This event, this event that I just told you about, this wedding that I just took you to, this wedding that you just saw, this event, this happening at this wedding, that was the glory of God. That was the glory of God. And His name is Jesus, the Word who became flesh. And His disciples believed in Him. That's one of the most important points of the event. The sign took place that they may believe. The sign took place that the bride and bridegroom may believe. The sign took place that the family there may believe. The sign took place that the servants and the master of ceremonies may believe that He is who He is and He is, He's come to fulfill His mission as prophesies. These signs have been recorded that you and I, disciples who would come later, may believe. This wedding event was recorded so that all who hear and read this gospel will believe in Jesus. That's the mission statement of the book, chapter 20, verse 30, 31. The disciples witnessed a sign at this wedding, and they believed in the one whom the sign pointed to, Jesus. Believed is pistuon in the Greek. Very important word. I've given it to you before. I'll give it to you again because it's worth it. It means personal trust. There's nothing vague about it. Personal, personal, one-on-one, -on -one, belief, faith, trust, Confidence, that's the kind of belief that John's talking about. I saw this and I personally placed my belief in him. I and the others, we personally placed our trust and our confidence in him as the Messiah, seeing this. This demonstration of divine power and ability. That's the kind of faith and belief that we must have in Jesus. That's exactly the kind of faith and confidence and trust 
that we must have concerning Jesus, the Word made flesh. You see what John is doing here in this summary? In verse 11, he's inviting us to go along with him. He's inviting you and I, anybody who sees and reads and hears this gospel, he's inviting all of us to join him and the others to believe in Jesus, to believe with the first disciples, and to behold Christ's manifested and displayed glory. Thank you for allowing me to teach the wedding at Cana in one Sunday. I appreciate your patience. I didn't want to divide up this text. Thank you for enabling me to keep it together. And so what do we have to say in summary? These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in the great bridegroom's name. And that by believing and having life in his name, you may participate in the wedding feast which knows no end. Amen. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful event. Mysterious, quiet, but wonderful as it was. To point to Jesus, God in the flesh, who has come to provide and rescue for a humanity in crisis. And that He truly is the answer for humanity in crisis. And He is offering us an invitation to a wedding in the future which is perfect beyond our imagination and knows no end. Please, Lord God, by the power of Your Word, by the power of Your Spirit, let the truth of this event sit wisely and well in the hearts and minds of all who hear. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. To dismiss, let's sing hymn number 149. I'm sure a lot of people...